What is cottage industrialism? Cottage industrialism is cottage industry just made more productive and useful. Welcome to the Good and Basic Podcast, a long-form conversation with Joseph and Joseph about the videos on our channel, all the crazy things we do, and all the cool ideas undergirding them. Yep. So here we are. You can find our social media information, including a link to an audio-only podcast in the video description or the show notes in case you happen to be listening on a podcast platform. And uh, so, so here we are. Uh, this week, we published a bunch of really interesting videos about windmills and then one about the process we went through for threshing. Mm-hmm. And this has brought up a lot of thoughts about appropriate technology and specifically about um, how, to, how to get this kind of mid-scale technology where you know, you're able to be very productive as a you know, small plot holder or mm-hmm. a small business owner, but not going all the way to full mechanization, thousands of employees. Which, you know, it's funny, I didn't actually realize it until just now, but that's the one of the core ideas undergirding the threshing video as well as the, the windmills. I was only yes. thinking about the windmills, but the threshing thing, uh, the threshing project we did, one of the core questions we're trying to answer there is, okay, so who could do this feasibly in their backyard? Yes. Basically? Could you and do this how on... how could they do it feasibly in their backyard and not hate it? <laughs> <laughs> another, another very important thing. You probably won't keep doing things you hate, so it needs to be, uh, it needs to be a game we all enjoy playing. Yes, or at least a game that's worth playing more than once. Yes. Um, okay, so, well, you also coined this phrase. I'm assuming you're the one who coined this phrase, right? Cottage industrialism. Well, I, I coined it, but, you know, there may have been other people who invented it parallel. So okay. I, I don't know. Maybe there's other people. Credit where it's term. due, Joseph. Credit where it's due. Um, meaning well, to thank you. you. Thank meaning you. to you. I appreciate so, that. Okay, so can you give us, uh, <clears throat> what is what is cottage industrialism? Cottage industrialism is cottage industry just made more productive and useful. The advantage of industrialism is that you're able to get a lot done with fewer resources. You're more efficient, you're more productive, you can get more stuff done. And that ends up creating cheaper stuff, higher standard of living for all of us. It's been really, really nice that, you know, clothes are cheap. Mm-hmm. As one example, the Industrial Revolution took an industry that used to take uh, a third and this is the statistic I've heard, is a third of people's waking hours on average were spent in uh, processing wool and spinning wool and uh, warping up a loom and weaving and then uh, preparing the, the woven stuff after it was made. After you weave fabric, you need to go through a process called fulling, if it's wool fabric, where it's a separate beading process, takes a long, long time. You need to process it with chemicals, and then you sew the garments together, and then, of course, you need to do laundry. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of these things used to take a tremendous just, amount of time. Just to get a pair of jeans. Just to get a pair of jeans. And nowadays, <laughs> the only one of these processes that really stays in the home is laundry. So, I mean, that's yeah, kind of not the last even, remnant. Yeah, not in all cases. You not know. in all cases. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, so, so, so cottage industrialism then is sort of think Etsy, but higher quality and more of it. And think the Industrial Revolution, but more locally and independently controlled. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, Mostly that, probably also more uh, ecologically friendly, so on and so forth. One example of this, so people, most people don't have looms in their homes. There used to be a time when we toured a, uh, a weaving shop when we were at Zanzaskans. And when we were there in the Netherlands, you know, you could see this house, which was kind of a house slash factory. It was a cottage mm-hmm. industry center mm-hmm. where people were making sailcloth and they were investing lots of time and energy in like it's, it's half house, half factory, mm-hmm. like super micro tiny factory workshop really and they're working so hard to make a loom and to make fabric on the loom we don't do that anymore if you find somebody who has a loom in their house it's purely for hobby purposes Mm -hmm. they're not doing it really to make a living Mm -hmm. Uh, the exception is uh, 
the last process from making fabric and doing all the stuff that really stays in the home is laundry. And the reason for that is washing machines. It is economical. It makes sense mm -hmm. to own your own washer and dryer to take care of that problem. I mean, you're going to need to do laundry a lot, and so you could pay ridiculous amounts in a laundromat, mm -hmm. or you could have your own machine. Mm -hmm. And in many cases... Higher upfront costs, but lower long-term costs. Exactly. And the upfront cost is not so high that it is outside the realm of many, people. most people. Yes. Yeah. We got ours used for like 100 bucks. Yeah. Like, or, or this is a piece of capital, really, Yeah. that ordinary people can... Within, you know. within reach. Yeah, so the, the capital thing is really interesting to, you, to me, too, because you, you're talking about how that uh, the weaver shop that we toured at Zanzer Hans was... I won't try to pronounce that again. I really you can. It. You nailed it, actually. Oh, well, thank you. Well, that's why I won't try to pronounce it again, because I just did it perfectly <laughs> the first time. Um, so <clears throat> it's a weaver shop that's, that's also a house, right? Yes. And so you have a combined house and quote-unquote factory. And it's a weird house because it's actually holding two families. Mm -hmm. So it's like a, a duplex that has <laughs> a room, a very large room that's dedicated to uh, weaving mm -hmm. with several looms established in it. Mm -hmm. so, so what's so interesting to me about that is that uh, you know, I'm, I'm speaking mostly from my own idiosyncratic experience, So, I, but I think that this is pretty true across the United States and, and, and probably true across most of the developed world, that homes are not places for making things. Um, and when they are places for making things, it's sort of on a hobby level. It's not on a, we actually need to produce this to live level. Yep. Right. And there's some exceptions to that, right? Cooking and is an exception. Laundry is an exception. Too. But um, there's there's most most homes are not filled with things to make things. And that's really interesting. What are they filled with? Is they're filled with uh, consumer goods. They're filled with uh, gaming consoles. They're filled with TVs, um, computers, uh, like a ping pong table or a pool table, right? You're, uh, well, you know, through the internet or you maybe you, you get Netflix or maybe you have a DVD collection, right? They're, they're not places to produce things. And um, they're not situate, they're, they're not places for capital goods. They're places for consumer goods. And I think that that is both interesting and not very good. There's a really interesting thing about the hobby uh, aspect. So I, w I was listening to a lecture recently at the law school about, uh, given by a very prominent, very capable, very well-known attorney who has is now a partner in a firm. And the story there is actually kind of funny. I mean, he was just doing enough consulting work and work with this firm and was so well-known that they just made him a partner. <laughs> um, just, you know, save, save the time. Um, and so, I mean, he's he's a high-powered career guy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, he's doing all this stuff. Uh, he's, he's changing the world. He's a suit-and-tie kind of business person lawyer. And he has a wood shop at his house. Mm -hmm. Now, what function does that wood shop provide? It's, it's not a, it's something a, he's making his living off no, of. No, it's a distraction. It's a way to... So what need is that filling in him? And that, that's the thing that interests me about hobby shops and uh, craft stores is they tend to be very, very expensive places to shop. But that in and of itself tells you something really interesting. Those prices tell you that there are people out there with enough discretionary income that can shop there. That's one thing. And the second thing is that it's worth it to them to pay these exorbitant prices to buy stuff at craft mm -hmm. stores. And to me, that speaks to a very fundamental human need to be in the making process. Mm -hmm. I mean, for its own sake. Mm -hmm. You don't need it necessarily to make a living. You need it for it. Yeah. You, you it's know, and one of the things you make a living for. Yeah, there's actually, you know, you and I are not super well known for being huge fans of Karl Marx um, in general, but there's actually two 
sort of semi-Marxist, well, or, or plausibly even Marxist points here, and one is about the alienation of labor, right? Sure. That there are... Uh, why, do you, why do you feel this compulsive need to go do hobbies and to, you know, if you're a high-powered lawyer, to go have a wood shop? And the answer is, well, you, actually, you need to feel like you need to... You, you, you need to have that feeling of making things, right? Uh, and you perhaps feel alienated enough from your work as a lawyer that you need something else. Yeah, something where right. you... And that alienation is to feel that you have done something productive and useful and to see the product of your labor. Mm-hmm. So if you're enough steps removed from something, say that you're working in the accounting department mm-hmm. of a company that makes toasters, um, you do work, you're working on this one accounting proje- project looking for an error in, in the documents, and then uh, you know somehow down the line that helps produce toasters. Yeah, but it's hard for you to see the effect of that. Yes. And that's roughly Marx's point about the alienation of labor is that the problem is if you screw uh, toothpaste caps onto toothpaste tubes all day, well, that's actually kind of demeaning and dehumanizing, right? And, yeah. And it's very hard for you to see how you're making the world a better place. And it's very hard for you to feel, feel very fulfilled at your job. And so one of the things we're looking for is the fulfillment aspect. Mm-hmm. So aside from the make a living, be comfortable, have discretionary income, do stuff, mm-hmm. and you know, be able to sit down and enjoy your DVD collection, mm-hmm. there's also an unmet human need to feel satisfied in our work. Which is interesting because in a post-industrial world, in a post-industrial world, we seem to have, I'm, I'm hypothesizing here, I'm, I'm not sure about this, but we seem to have sort of separated those two faculties is we don't look for meaning in work and we don't look for work in meaning. Like, uh, you know, when you when you want to relax and entertain yourself, you uh, you watch Netflix or you have a wood shop or something like that, you crochet I don't know what you do. Whatever it is that you do, right? Um, but it's separate from your work. And so work and meaning are, or work and human fulfillment are like two different domains. That's actually a huge problem and with millennials is that they all want to make an impact. <laughs> like all yeah, these things yeah. that millennials are known well, for and kind of mocked for, um, y- you know, they can be taken too far. I really like what Mike Rowe says about uh, ignore, don't do what you love, do what the opportunity is. Mm-hmm. There seems to be something really cool there and he's able to extract meaning from very uh, dirty jobs. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it is interesting that those those phrases like "I want to make an impact," "I want to mm-hmm. feel meaning in my work," they are speaking to real needs. Uh-huh. And yeah. so I, I, you need to balance that, of course. But Ye- uh, yeah, don't pass up perfectly good opportunities. But at the same time, uh, it is something that we need to be aware of that mm-hmm. we have a human need to, you know, see the product of our labor. Yeah, there's a second sort of uh, semi-Marxist point here. Um, which is about, uh, so so Marx was not a fan of the way, like the reason why he called the Western economic system capitalism is because um, it relies on capital and capital is goods that are used to produce other goods. So like a hamburger is not capital because you just eat the hamburger and then it's done. But a grill is capital because you can actually use the grill to make hamburgers and then sell hamburgers, right? Yeah. So the rye we threshed is not capital. Although, well, I would argue it kind of is capital because you can plant it, but whatever. If it's intended for human consumption, it's not capital, right? But that wood chipper that we used to thresh the grain uh, is capital because it's stuff that can be used to, uh, to, to produce. It, it, it's, a, it's a piece of equipment that can be used on intermediate goods to produce final goods for consumption. Yes. Right. So, and it drastically improves the process of threshing. Yes. So this is the really interesting thing about, about uh, American homes. And I, I'm assuming, again, that this is true across uh, developed nations, uh, you know, mostly true, is that they don't have capital goods. It's all final goods. It's all consumer goods. Right. And so to me, cottage industrialism is partially uh, about Marx's, ironically enough, 
uh, about Marx's dream of, uh, of of seizing the means of production, right? Um, yes, the, but uh, not through the control of the state, but through the yes. control of the individual, or rather the yeah. family. It's it's a cottage. little more closely aligned with G.K. T- Chesterton's distributivism. So G.K. Chesterton is a British author around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, he was a fan of the, the, the economic, I don't know if you would call it a theory, a system, or an ideology, but the block of ideas called distributivism, yep. right? Um, which, roughly speaking, is the idea that capital goods should be distributed as widely as possible among the people. So their, their slogan, slogan was, was three, three acres, acres and a cow. cow. Yeah. Um, in, in other words, you know, if you have three acres of land, well, you could grow some food. And if you had a cow, if you had a cow, then you have you have dairy. And isn't that nice, right? This is partially connected to my my obsession. I think that's probably the right way to say it. My, my personal obsession. And no one else needs to share this obsession, <laughs> but I have it as an obsession. And maybe there's good reasons for that. Um, with independence. Um, if I had three acres and a cow, then suddenly the amount of wages I need to be making, the amount mm-hmm. of money I need to be bringing in, drops. Let's say it doesn't go to zero. I don't think it ever really goes to zero, but it drops enough to where I don't need much. And that would be really, really cool, especially if I can derive satisfaction and fulfillment out of my garden. Mm-hmm. So if, if the garden is drudgery and painstaking and horrible and it, it would be so much better to have a desk job, then that's one thing. But I don't think that's actually true. I think I could actually derive an amazing amount of satisfaction and independence and then, you know, cover my expenses with a part-time job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Funny enough, this actually, uh, in addition to referencing Marx, we're also going to reference Ayn Rand here. Because in a way, that's <laughs> this, Alice This Rudge. is the only time, this is the only time in the whole history of the universe that Marx and Ayn Rand will be brought together as, as allies. So yes. you're witnessing history, guys. Yeah. I, I mean, there's something to that where I want to see more people being producers and mm-hmm. not just for uh, a lot of its personal satisfaction. I think it would be good for the individual who becomes a producer to be a producer. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, there's something virtuous about that, uh, having a large population of producers in a given area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and this is also small scale. this is actually a core idea that I think undergirds uh, the political history and philosophy of the United States is the idea that you want to distribute power out. You don't want to concentrate the power. Um, and that includes companies and that includes governments. Yeah, yeah. so and and you know if if you if you're willing to indulge me just a little bit in some 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 quasi-political railing for a second, one way of framing things is you could say, well, the rough problem with the left is that they think that it's a good idea to centralize power in government and that if we centralize power in government, everything will be fine. And that uh, the right may not be doing anything different. They might be just saying that, well, we, what we should do is we should centralize power in businesses, right? And somebody like G.K. Chesterton would say, well, wait a second, wait a second. Don't, isn't there a third option where we just don't centralize power? Where we spread it out as widely as possible, where we as spread widely, out that as power, possible. yeah, where we spread yeah. out that power and responsibility. Yep, there's this um, uh, old Catholic idea. A lot of G.K. Chesterton's political thought is derived from Catholic social teaching, and one of these is what's called the subsidiary function, the subsidiary principle, which is that if a problem can be solved from a smaller unit, so you've got individuals, you've got families, you've got communities, you've got uh, you know provinces, and you work your way up to a centralized you know government. Mm-hmm. And the question is, if you can solve a problem at the individual level, it should be solved at the individual level and not brought to the family level. If you can solve a problem at a family level, it should not be brought to the community level. If you can solve a problem at the community level, it should not be brought up and so on Mm -hmm. and so forth. Which is also roughly, it's not exactly equivalent to, but it's roughly cognate with federalism. Federalism slash uh, what uh, Ben Franklin called a Republican form of government. Basically... Mm -hmm. uh, representative all the way up, solving as much as you can on the lower levels. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So, well, wow, that was quite the survey of economic, political, and uh, religious thought. So <laughs> this doesn't deny the possibility that there are some problems that have to be solved at a concentrated, yeah. centralized mm -hmm. level. Um, a, a national currency is one of the things that's listed in Article One powers in the U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. If you like want to fight handy. Nazi Germany, it's very hard to do that yourself. Yes, yes, it is. But uh, there's many, many problems that can be solved at the community level, and maybe they're better solved if mm -hmm. they're done at the smallest level. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably true. I think it is mm -hmm. true. Well, and also, not only – to me, it's a largely unexplored idea. Yes. Because the, in my mind, the Industrial Revolution made us so filthy rich, just so filthy rich, that we haven't had to worry about efficiency for a long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, you know, going back to the Black Country Living History Museum that we toured, right? There's piles of coal lying around. Okay, man, how are you? How on earth can you just like this is a museum? Leave People... piles of coal lying around, yeah. right? And and I mean that's just tip of the tip of the iceberg, right? Like, uh, you know. Blah, blah, blah. American disposals eat better than lots of people in different countries, so on and so forth, right? Pick your favorite statistics along those lines, right? Um, we are rich enough to be wasteful, and that's that's absolutely insane, right? Uh, but, you know, perhaps because of the crisis of meaning a little bit, and then, you know, there's other reasons like the fact that um, countries like Brazil, China, uh, areas like Africa are developing more. And so, well, okay, you know, competition eats up margins, right? And so... Things, it's getting harder to, to have that level of wealth and inefficiency. So let's is say. waste good? Um, I don't know if I'm saying waste is good, but waste is a sign that you're lucky, that you're fortunate, I would you're say. You're doing very, very, very well. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it's a true. good thing, but it's a sign that, you're, that you've been very fortunate. Yeah. So <laughs> um, anyway, so, so now's the time when we're starting to ask these efficiency questions again. I think it's also related to globalization, right, which is the same I thing as that like, developing country efficiency, type thing. This is something that you brought up in our video from last week, or was it the week before, when we were harvesting rye, mm -hmm. which was about how inefficiency uh, is probably not the right way to look at these problems. It's what are you optimizing for? Mm -hmm. Because if you optimize for two things, then you're not efficient at either one of those mm -hmm. things, but you are efficient at bringing them both in in a balanced sort of way. Yeah. And so you have a car, and the car is efficient at traveling on roads, and it's really terribly ineffective at going off-road and well, it's really not really terribly bad. ineffective though it's, it's like it's much better than a train much better than a train it's true it's like true much better than a train <laughs> and uh probably doesn't float very well so it's not no. efficient at, at, at driving no. on the water but you know it it is very efficient at some things kind of efficient at other things and there's a series of competing values that it's trying to meet mm -hmm. and so cars um you trade power for uh fuel economy Sometimes you want more power, sometimes you want more fuel economy, but generally speaking, nobody wants to waste tons of fuel. So even if you're driving a big pickup truck, you want it to be as fuel efficient as possible mm -hmm. while not sacrificing the value of hauling that massive trailer. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is this is another point that G.K. Chesterton would raise is that it's it's just insane to aim at efficiency because aiming at efficiency doesn't actually uh, doesn't actually help you unless you've already had a goal assumed. And you all, you are presuming that the goal that you're pursuing is the only goal mm -hmm. that is worth pursuing, yeah. which is dangerous. Well, and it's also just false. Like, humans actually have uh, multiple goals. You know, I want to, you know, like, think about a pickup truck, right? Well, why would I get a pickup truck? Well, one thing I want to be able to do is to uh, bring home a load of iron ore from, from Cedar City. Yes, right? a bigger one than the, <clears throat> what, 300 pounds we managed yeah. to stuff in your trunk? Uh, but I also want to be able to just go down to the store but I also want to be able to uh, maybe drive long distance to visit my family or to go to yeah. Yellowstone, right? Like I actually have multiple 
things I want to do with that. Yeah, range, efficiency, uh, weight carrying right. capacity, speed. Mm -hmm. You've got all these different values that at certain times well, are going to be more And this is true others. with food too because you want food that's delicious, you want food that's nutritious, and you want food that uh, is convenient. that satisfies your caloric needs and is convenient. It's like, okay, well, these are actually very hard to balance, right? And you want if food you that eat looks fast good. food, If you eat fast food, it might be delicious and satisfy your caloric needs, but it's not nutritious. Um, oh, gosh, what was the other one you mentioned? Look good? Oh, uh, well, there was one you mentioned before that. There's multiple values. Yeah, there's there's multiple values here that you're trying to balance across, right? And like your 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 steak and quinoa salad balances it in a way, it achieves a different balance of oh, goods. price. Price is another yeah, one. Yeah, price is another one, right? Yeah. Um, and the time involved to make it, right? The nice thing about fast food is that it is, well, fast. Yes. Right? Whereas your homemade steak and quinoa salad, well, not so much, right? That's going to take you a little bit more time, but it's also, you know, well, a little better for you most likely. Yeah. Um, so, so all these competing needs, and if you are mm -hmm. too efficient, let's say that your one consideration becomes nutrition and that you have this centralized and suddenly everybody's eating protein pellets yeah. with uh, all the vitamin enriched. And that's assuming that you understand how human nutrition works. Which is another assumption. <laughs> it is. Uh, we've run into problems with that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Cue the anti-fat craze of, you know, the, what was that, the 70s? Yeah. I don't know. There's, there's lots of th – there's, there's plenty of ways to get things wrong. The nice thing and about we keep variety, inventing new ones. The, the nice thing about variety and inefficiency is it's a good way to function well without perfect knowledge. And so one of the things that's nice about if you just eat lots of different things and uh, you, you try to tend it toward what's healthy, but you have a lot of variety, is that if there are micronutrients that are unknown to science, then you run a higher chance of getting them. Yeah. Um, there's also increased danger to the individual that maybe you're eating something that's really terrible for you. We'll find out in 15 years that it causes cancer. That is also a thing. Fortunately, but fortunately, that risk is distributed such that over time, you know, you'll notice who's healthy and who's not. And basically, it's like an uncontrolled, massive study <laughs> at all times where we're uh, picking up the things that work. And that's how history has functioned. Welcome to the world's greatest science experiment. It's called natural selection. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Um, so this actually raises an interesting question, which is, okay, so cottage industrialism, what is, what is cottage industrialism optimizing for? Uh, you know, and I'm including a range of potential values there. What things is it optimizing for? Well, the thing that... And, and, and how would that be different than whatever it is that exactly. we're doing Exactly. Yeah. What, what things would it be optimizing for that are under-optimized for in our current mm -hmm. system? And uh, the way things tend to work, um, I guess you can call it a system, although I don't think it's quite that organized is uh, one of the things that's under-organized for is independence. And that's one of the things that gets me really excited, is the ability to be independent and to run your own business, and also to be free. Because I think when you're free, you are able to make purer choices. I'm not going to say better choices, but the choice aspect of that choice becomes purer if you didn't have to do it. Um, if I'm living in a house and paying rent, then I am not free to not pay rent unless I want to not live there anymore and not have a house. And so uh, I, I'm kind of trapped into that one. Going forward, every single month, I have a minimum amount of money I need to make just to stay put. Um, I'm running at least a little bit fast just to stay in one place, and it, quite literally. Mm -hmm. um, if, if to you're stay mostly in one place. Sorry, that took me a minute. To stay in one place. That's exactly, stay, to good. stay in one house. Um, in order, if I owned my own home and had you know, some of the means of production, to uh -huh. use that Marxian term, yeah, yeah, yeah. in my own home, then suddenly I control my hours and I control whether or not I work a given day or a given month. I mean, I mean, to some degree, right? Like mm -hmm. people who say that they want to be their own boss 
Um, Might 90, 90% of the time, yeah, 90% of the time, they just haven't had experience being their own boss and having to figure out what to do next. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, you know, I worked at a, a cherry farm uh, one summer, and the family who owns the cherry farm, uh, I, I, I stayed at their house. It was, and it was a fantastic experience. Very interesting. Very cool to, to participate in that process. Um, I mean, I mean, they're well off, right? And they, and they also own a cherry farm. Um, but they have, you know, hundreds of workers on the payroll. There's the, the equipment is incredibly expensive. They, the other year they just put in like $60,000 machines Every time the right? equipment and they have to manage everything. Oh yeah. Uh, this is the crazy thing. I, gosh, I wish I had the numbers. I knew the numbers at one point, but every, if the, you know, there's a giant assembly line, right? Uh, cherries are being frozen and chilled. They're being destemmed. They're being sorted. Um, they're being pitted and then they're being packed into, into, into these buckets. Right. And all this is happening at the same time. So if anything in that procedure goes wrong, right, like if the pump stops working so that you can't cover them in frozen water to chill them, if uh, if uh, the sugar dispenser uh, stops working for a while, if the pitters get jammed, um, if you have to shut down that line, uh, I, I, gosh, I can't remember what it is, but I think I think they're losing. It was either hundreds or I know I think I think it was thousands of dollars every minute that that equipment isn't working. And, and, you know, just, just imagine Talk about that, right? stress. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just imagine yeah. yourself in a situation where by standing still, you're losing thousands of dollars. You would have uh, motivation to keep moving. But oh, also yes. Some, you know, oh, cortisol yes. levels would right. be rising. And, and so, Lots of stress. And, and so, you know, when people say they want to be their own boss, I'm like, maybe you do. And maybe you just don't know enough about what it means to be your own boss. There's also because the there's a lot of work and responsibility involved. Yeah. I mean, just just finishing your homework on time. I mean, yeah. If you're a chronic procrastinator, I mean, that's going to extend over into your business practices. Actually, if you don't mind me mentioning, um, independence was the first thing that I thought of. Yes. Right. Um, The second thing I thought of was uh, responsibility, actually. And the development of character. Yes. I'm just thinking about if you are managing your own stuff and you are your own boss, um, Mm -hmm. there's some pressure there. Mm -hmm. But that pressure could be the forge that, you know, Mm -hmm. removes your procrastination Mm -hmm. habit with, uh, you know, repeated blows to the head. Mm -hmm. You know, the nice thing, when I was working on that cherry, uh, when I was working that cherry processing plant, um, most of my job was basically to track shipments and pallets for quality control. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't have to worry if the pump was working or not. If the pump broke down, not my problem, right? And I mean... You get 10 minutes off. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the short term, it benefits me, right? And, and you know, that that wasn't my attitude. It, it was actually owned by, by, by family members. And so I was not happy if the pump ever broke down, right? But, but you know, just as, as a worker from an economic perspective, right, like, you know, it doesn't directly hurt me, Yeah. right? I don't have to worry about that. That's somebody else's job to worry about. Whereas, you know, to it, there's a lack of responsibility because I was, you know, working for a wage. Yeah. Right. Whereas the, the owners of the, of the cherry... Uh, of the cherry farm, right? Well, there's a lot of responsibility there because they own all the capital goods. And that bleeds back into the independence thing where if you are independent and responsible for your own self, that gives you uh, another sense of freedom. It also Mm -hmm. means that you are accepting the inherent risks that were already present, but you may have been shielded from. Yeah, well, and that's the thing is like, if the pump really does break down routinely, guess who's going to eventually not have a job? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's me, right? So, so the, the truth is that by being a, and I don't want to say, I mean, I, I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the job and it was good. It was a fantastic experience. And so I don't mean to use wage slave derogatorily, but it was the type of job that people think of when they think of wage slaves, right? Like, you know, there's, like you're saying, there's already risks embedded in the fact that I'm a wage slave that I'm just not picking up on. Yes. Right. At least if you're distributing, at least if you're distributing the capital goods, then, uh, you know, people, people are going to be more aware of it. Nassim Taleb uses an analogy uh, to talk about the, the differences between volatility and risk where he uses a cab driver and a investment banker who are brothers. 
and let's say they're making about the same amount of money on average per year. Mm -hmm. And the one guy is an employee, he's stable, he's got a 401k, he's got benefits, he's got dental, he's got all this stuff. And he's very insulated from variability. Mm -hmm. His uh, pay per month is the same number and he knows what it's gonna be. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, he can he can do payday loans. That's a thing that he could do. Mm -hmm. um, because he knows that there will be payday. He knows that there will be payday, uh, or at least presumes. Um, so he has a very low variability environment. Mm -hmm. And then you have his brother, who's the cabbie, and he goes you know, a couple of days without making like hardly anything mm -hmm. because he's in the wrong part of town. But that gives him information, and so he moves to a different part of town. And there's other days where he makes bank, and it's going great. And then there's high variability from day to day, and he doesn't know if he's going to make enough to cover costs mm -hmm. on a particular day. But over the span of a year, you average out all those ups and downs, and it turns into about the same wage per year. And so, you know, the, there's underlying risk. There's actually lower risk for the cabbie over time because people are always going to need cabbies. I guess Uber starts cutting into his territory. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you could do the same thing for an Uber driver. Yeah, you could. And then the... Make the same calculation. Yes, yes. Depending on what the rates are and all that stuff, I'm not sure how the economics of Uber driving work, and I'm a little suspicious of them. Uh, I like the idea. I like the idea a lot. I just want to want to know how that number works. It is very distributivist. It is. It's exceedingly like distributivist. It is. That's a weird thing where the internet, the ability to concentrate information has allowed us to distribute labor. Yeah. Which You know, at, at some point we ought to talk about what a godsend to, to cottage industrialism the internet has been. Yes. It's insane. It is. It's absolutely bonkers. And the weird thing is it's semi-centralized and semi-distributed and it does both. Like a given app is centralized, right? You get mm -hmm. all the, the people on one app. We're all mm -hmm. Facebook users, right? Yeah. Except maybe not. Um, but then the actual interactions that make the platform work are distributed. Mm -hmm. So YouTube is a centralized platform on which we post this video. We love YouTube. Um, it's concentrated, well, centralized, second largest search engine on the internet mm -hmm. after Google. Yeah. So that's kind of crazy. I mean, that search bar on YouTube is the second largest search engine on the internet. Which is crazy. But then all the things that make YouTube good are distributed. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the fact that the, the fact that yeah. it's 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 two noobs like you and me who are making a video right yeah. now, and people are going to watch it. It's just yeah. bonkers. It is. It's crazy. Thank you, by the way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. The other thing that I think of, along with we've talked about uh, independence, we've talked about responsibility. You know, and with all this talk about responsibility, I kind of sense that Jordan Peterson is starting to enter the chat. Okay, Mark, Jordan so, Peterson in the same chat. I know, this right? Is fun. Mark, Jordan Peterson, Ayn Rand, G.K. Chesterton. If we could get these four people in a room. We need to provide a book list and then put some links in the description below because yeah. th there's some good there's some I, good I will add a few links. And gosh, I, I will even add Mark's. I will even add Mark's. So, <laughs> gosh, that's funny. Um, uh, anyway, anyway, so we talked about independence, freedom, uh, or excuse me, independence and responsibility. Um, you've talked a little bit about freedom. And the other thing that is attendant with responsibility and, and independence is power. Right. Yes. Um, those those two things as pair. Yeah. Right. So responsibility plus power. I mean, with great power, they're the mirror image of each other. You have to accept responsibility in order to have power and not be a terrible person. Mm -hmm. And then if you have accepted responsibility, that in a which, strange way gives you power. Which incidentally, which sorry, we're getting just a hair scattered now, but this is the whole thesis of Nassim Taleb's book, uh, Skin in, in the, the game. game. Right. Which is basically that responsibility and power need to be paired. Yes. So, ta-da. That's a really, really good Wh one. Which also one. seems to be the point of cottage industrialism. So, okay, well, Nassim Taleb has now entered the chat, too. <laughs> okay, wow. <sighs> Running okay. list. Yeah. 
crazy. Well, it's it's cool to be able to stitch together all those ideas, right? Since we were mentioning distributivism, let's add one more. Hilaire Belloc, The Servile State, yeah, which is all about um, how a state could change over time to allow for an institution like slavery to become part of the legal code, where there's Key. different sets of rights and responsibilities for different classes of people based mm-hmm. on whether or not they basically can own property. Yeah. Um. Belloc is another one of the big distributivists. Yes, so. friend of G.K. Chesterton. Okay, wow. I, I almost feel like we need to reorient ourselves. I wanted to I wanted to talk a little bit about the windmills and the threshing and how those embody the idea of cottage industrialism, let's but I don't know up. if there's anything else you want to say. No, no, let's jump into that. Sweet. So the windmills, first of all. So this was really interesting to me. I, I don't think it made it into the videos. I can't remember, but um, but there was something that I mentioned while we were at Zanzas Cons, which is that... Um, these windmills, right, because they do so many jobs, right? You yeah. use the wind power to pump water. You use it to grind grain. You use it to extract oil. You use it to uh, to cut logs, right? Yeah. Um, right, that it's almost like the wind is your electrical outlet. Yeah. And you just plug in, you know, in the same way that there's an electrical outlet in your house and you plug in a kitchen mixer. You plug in a microwave. You plug in a vacuum cleaner. You plug in your computer. You plug in your alarm clock. You plug in all kinds of things, right? It's, it's this universal source of power, right? That uh, at, at Zanzas Khan's, the, the mills there, it, it's, it's like having a bunch of different appliances that do different things plugged into the wind. That's yeah. their electrical outlet. Yeah. Right? And so then this made us also think, uh, you know, okay, so that's an interesting idea. What if you had something similar in your house, right, that, I mean, just hypothetically, we'd have to develop the idea because windmills don't work in some respects for a variety of reasons, not least the fact that you need a nice, flat, windy country. Yes. But, but imagine some sort of, like, in the same way that you have an electrical outlet, imagine, like, a mechanical outlet in the wall, yeah. right, that you could just plug a variety of What I'm imagining is uh, something into. In, in the wall or in the counter of your house with, like, a mechanical transmission line up to your windmill that looks a little bit like the bottom that a blender sets into. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's that kind of uh, wheel shape and then the blender clicks into that and then that shape spins, which then spins the blades on the on the blender. And then I'm imagining that you click your appliance into that like a blender or a mixer or mm-hmm. uh, a washing machine even, something yeah. that needs to turn. Yeah. And then anything that requires little, mechanical power. A little latch that clicks it down so it'll hold it still. And then a, a separate switch that engages the power, engages the transmission so it starts turning. And you could even hook it up to like a mechanical battery, uh, a gravity battery. So you've got a large weight uh-huh. falling, just like a large grandfather clock, and then that runs runs the gizmos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a really cool idea. The, the flip side of it that I was thinking is that the electrical outlets are basically our equivalent of windmills, right? Yeah. It's the universal power source that we just plug everything into. Incidentally, um, the the spare pressure that's in your hose, like in, in the spare pressure that is in your tap, so you turn on the tap, there's you know some force with the water that's coming out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in an area with lots and lots of water where conserving water isn't a big deal, right around the turn of the century, they sold water motors, uh, power tools that were powered by hmm. tap water. Because you just have that spare power lying around. Yeah, spare power lying in the in the plumbing lines. A little different when you live in Utah. <laughs> yes. Uh, here, not enough water. Not enough water. Lots of sunshine. So, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the free resource we have. Yeah, well, and... Right now, our electrical outlets are basically hooked up to the power grid, right? And and it's a real testament, you know, like, uh, there's lots of not good things about coal. Yeah. But it's a real testament to it's the utility the of coal as an energy fo- as an energy source mm-hmm. that, um, oh, yeah, well, this is a thing that you mentioned that also didn't make it into a video, is that coal was originally seen as kind of a green form of energy because oh, yeah. previous to that, the, the main uh, heat fuel source was charcoal. 
and to make charcoal, you have to burn a lot of trees. You do. And Sherwood so, Forest was basically and so, completely obliterated to make coal, charcoal, yeah. for the Industrial Revolution. And, and so the original bumper sticker, pro-coal bumper sticker, would have been save the trees. Yeah. Which is insane to think about It now. is. There's actually right. more tree cover right now on the planet than there has been for hundreds and hundreds of years as a result of so long burning fossil fuels, mm-hmm. which is crazy to me. Mm-hmm. Um, including in the United States, we've got more forests now than we did a hundred years ago. It's it's a real testament to the to the power of coal that, or to the utility of coal, I should say that like we plug everything into the electricity produced by burning coal. But I mean, yeah. I know it's a little more complex than that. It but, is, but roughly right. But you can't help but wonder. Okay, is there? How would you supply a universal power source for a home? And right. and it depends on what kind of power you're using. The vast majority of energy that people use in their homes is related to heating and cooling. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a huge bulk of it. So I mean, so you use natural gas for that maybe. You use electricity for that maybe. Maybe if your home was just better designed, you would need less of it in the first place. So that's one thing. Um, mm-hmm. There's a thing called passive solar design where during the summertime, uh, your house kind of shields itself from the sun. Mm-hmm. And you can do this just by adjusting the angle that your windows are at. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do that cleverly when you're constructing it during the winter time the sun tends to be at a low angle so that can reach into your home and heat it up and then you have you know uh, tile floors and some stone to absorb some of that heat Mm -hmm. and then you can keep your house a little warmer that way and then during the summertime uh, you've got uh, an awning on the house that's just at the right angle so that when the summer sun comes which is more directly overhead it blocks the sun and then maybe you plant a couple of deciduous trees that suddenly have leaves during the summer blocking the sun mm-hmm. right outside your house. And then a lot of that heating and cooling, maybe not all, but a lot of it is just taken care of. It just naturally. happens ambiently. It just happens ambiently. <sighs> Which would and be so awesome. If heating and cooling drops out of the equation, then suddenly a lot of the a lot of the physical things that need to happen around your house are, mm-hmm. are mechanical, like the blender or the washing machine. Mm-hmm. The washing machine uh, needs to pump water or at least let water come into it. Yeah, I mean that's easy enough to do, and then it needs to just turn and agitate and get that done, and that's that's easy enough to do, uh, with mechanical power from a windmill. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> the other thing I was thinking about in terms of returning to the whole the the whole uh, capital right yes equipment that produces final goods right, um, you know I just well I was I was thinking about the the threshing now yeah right and the the wood chipper that we used right. Um, could, could I have one thing yeah, real right fast? Uh, so there's not a lot of capital in a home. That's something that we mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of capital goods. I think the highest concentration of capital goods in a home are in your kitchen, probably. Huh. Because that's why the as as Cooking is the number one exception to yeah. not making your own stuff. And, and it's it's something we're losing. I mean, culturally. Uh, very true, right? Uh, for all sorts of reasons. Yes. Right. Thank but. heaven for the French. That's one thing that they're managing to keep in their culture mm-hmm. is, is buying local produce and cooking themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, the other place is in your computer. Um, this computer that you're watching or listening to this uh, device on is really strange because it is both uh, the means by which you enjoy a lot of final mm-hmm. product, like you're, you're listening to this for a mixture of education and entertainment, but it's also an empowering device. If I had known device. this was entertainment, I would have put in more jokes. Ha ha. Ha ha. <laughs> okay, sorry, as you were. Yes, anyway, so I'll put in better capital, ones. The kitchen and, uh, and the computer, I think, are probably the two highest concentrations yeah, in the Yeah, house. well, and the computer is a really interesting thing because, uh, I mean, uh, that one's almost even disappearing, too, because to do high-grade video editing, you need a, a better computer, right? 
um, you know, your your average PC probably can't handle these things. Although, well, um, we do just fine. I mean, all the editing that we've done I, well, has but been, I've been reasonably high quality, and it's been on home computers. Although mine has my my computers are are not low end. Sure, they're upper. They're like they're upper middle class computers. So you're hoity toity <laughs> with your computers. I yeah. am a little bit, right? But 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 even so, right? Uh, the 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 production capacity of computers is unreal, right? Um, video editing, audio editing, um, audio production, right? Things text. like GarageBand. Text. You can write. You can novelist. write a book on your on your smartphone. I mean, that's um, a thing you could do. Your your smartphone has so much memory that you could write multiple novels on the thing. Yeah, although um, you'd, you'd have uh, something would be wrong with your thumbs by the end. But well, not really. People, the number of text messages people could send is unreal. Okay, very fair. Um, um, right or or recording podcasts, all sorts of all sorts of things. So the, you know, I think you're right. The computer in the kitchen are the photography. Two. You can you can do photography. Yeah, on that's your very phone. true. It's crazy. Sorry. Well, and there's there's other ways too, right? Uh, you know, if if you uh, take instrument lessons for I don't know ten years or so, then you're probably good enough that you can teach um, you can you can teach kids, and all of a sudden you are capital. And you can uh, advertise using the internet. I yeah. mean, using your cell phone, you can create a website. You can you can. Uh, advertise using social media. You can get people to come to your to your Etsy shop. I mm-hmm. mean, it's not just uh, production capital; it's also distribution capital. You know, three D printers are the other really interesting one too, because uh, you know, three D printers are now down. down uh, you can get a decent one. What, what are we at? Two hundred, three hundred dollar range. Two hundred, right? Yeah, and I got a Creality Ender three, um, which I, I really enjoy. It requires a little bit of adjusting in yeah. order to keep it running, mm-hmm. mostly just to to get the filament to stick properly to the bed. Yeah. But I we'll link that cool in the description stuff. below too. Yeah. Um, it's treated me really the, nicely. Yeah, I think we're, gosh, we're gonna have a lot of links in the description. But um, uh, it, what what's so interesting about this is that so there's the 3D printer, right? Yeah. And you can make all kinds of stuff with a 3D printer. Yeah, including right. other stuff that makes stuff. The crazy cool thing. So there's a, a project online that um, I am tremendously excited about called the RepRap project, which is all about making a 3D printer using a 3D printer. And there are some ingredients that you can't make yourself. They call those the vitamins. <laughs> you know, motors, motors, and the extruder yeah. itself, and like the hot Although, end. Although, once we start talking about that, then you can start talking about CNC machines. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, the, you can make a lot of the frame. There's one called, uh, gosh, which one was that one? The Snappy. There was a, a 3D printer design uh, made in the UK, which is almost entirely 3D printed, minus the vitamins. The entire structure, the entire rolling system. And it's able to produce another 3D printer mm-hmm. itself. Uh, another one that I actually think of is I have a friend who's, uh, whose mother has two $15,000 sewing machines. And uh, so they, I mean, they're computer controlled. You can do uh, embroidery. You can, yeah, you can, you can like put in an image and it will embroider that image on the, on the cloth, right? Um, you know, there's the CNC machines. I, I really do think... I think the world really is ripe for like a cottage industrial rust revolution. Everything's and there I except think, for the cultural. And I think the world has of... never ever been more ready for it through some combination of the internet, the fact that uh, you know we're richer than we ever have been. I, I think the it's a thing of that could happen. Developing technology, I think it's a thing that too. could happen. Yeah, right. And I'd and like it to. So it's a it's a thing worth. It's it's really a thing worth thinking about. If, if you well, here's the other thing is I actually do think that there is something moral about the cottage industrialist, industrialist revolution too, because I, I think that the acquisition of power and responsibility is fundam is 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 fundamentally a good. Yeah, 
a, a valuable thing to be pursued. Power is a there, good there might thing be, if it is accompanied with the responsibility that naturally adheres to it. Th- there might be some exceptions to that. I'm not willing to like hang my soul on that right now. But but I think at least in general, the acquisition of power and responsibility is a good thing. Yeah. And so if you want to, you know, and here's the an interesting... concentration of power is a dangerous An thing. interesting mental exercise is to walk through... Well, maybe a moral exercise is to walk through your house and just look at everything and say... Is this a thing that consumes or is this a thing that gives me power and responsibility and helps me to produce, right? And gosh, I don't know what would happen if you, if I walked through through my house. Um, but well, it would be an, interest, an interesting exercise, right? Mm-hmm. And you could start thinking of things that you could turn into cottage industrialism for you, right? The things that you could I take more responsibility. I think the minimalist power uh, movement fits into this nicely. Hmm. My, my wife just got back from a writer's retreat that she went on where she was living in a yurt for a week. Mm-hmm. And then when she got home, you know, she'd been living in a yurt, which is quite small, quite minimalist. And then she got home and just felt exhausted from the stuff we had yeah. and instantly had this desire to, like, start getting rid of stuff. <laughs> and the question is, like, which stuff to get rid of? I mean, uh-huh. that, that's the calculation. Mm-hmm. So a cottage industrialist revolution starting today Let's um, seize the means of production. Cast off the shackles of the bourgeoisie by buying 3D printers. <laughs> by buying 3D printers and increasing well, distributing and this is, ownership. If I were to take a stab, this is where I would say Marx really does go wrong, is that I, I, I'm really loath to... W- once you start taking things by force from other people, and, and that includes government fiat, uh, you are on such shaky ground, man. You are, you are on the edge of a cliff. The you other the thing of a cliff, that is a right? huge problem is what do you do with dissidents? So uh, well, exactly. That's yeah. the thing is when you dissidents dissidents aren't a problem unless you're using force. Well, unless you're concentrating and centralizing. So if you're trying to get everybody on exactly the same page and all doing the same thing, um, in other words, minimizing freedom in favor of uh, a totalizing plan. If you're to- if you're going in the totalitarian direction, then suddenly everybody has to be on the same plan. And if mm-hmm. you have anybody who has other ideas, then they have suddenly you have two visions. Out. And what do you do with them? I mean, the options really are prison, uh, thought re-education slash brainwashing, or death. So, Which are not so good. None of those are really appealing. Mm-hmm. So distributing it out has the advantage of preserving freedom, which allows for chaos and multiple visions and different ideas and diversity. So cottage industrialism is basically the vision. Distribute power, distribute responsibility, distribute capital goods. And buy a 3D printer. Yep. <laughs> Did this turn into a crazy oh, ad gosh. for a 3D printer? Not on purpose. We're sorry, guys. Not We're sorry. Um, okay. All right. Well, Ladies that, and that's... gentlemen, thank you so yeah. much for listening to this episode of The Good and We, we better podcast. stop before we do something else wrong. Yeah. Okay. We really appreciate your support. Thank yeah. you for listening. Thanks so much. And uh, again, all the, the links for the audio-only version are in the show notes. We also have links to a, a, a growing list of books. Yeah, a bevy of stuff in case you're interested in it, um, all of which we would say are worth getting and or reading. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, The Servile State is available on LibriVox, which is free audiobooks for the blind. We actually uh, do care about this stuff. We're not, we're not just, just not just money. selling it. So, yeah. I mean, you can find a lot of this stuff. So, okay. Well, Thank you. That's all. Goodbye. <laughs>